Again, today is the celebration of Christ's birth. If you have not already, you probably will at some point, I suspect, spend some time with family and friends. Uh, you most likely will exchange some gifts and actually open them and rip them open and, and squeal and all of that fun stuff. Any squealers in here? There's so much that goes on during the Christmas season, though, I think it's easy for us to forget, even those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ intimately, that we can forget what it is that we are celebrating. I might ask the question this way, what does Christmas mean to you? What, what does it stand for? Is it the gifts? Is it the food? Is it uh, the singing of Christmas carols? Is it a time for family to get together? To be sure, Christmas time ought to include those things, but as much as we might say Jesus is the reason for the season, whatever that means, because we don't always define it, do we really stop to consider the greatest gift that has ever been given, the greatest gift that could ever be received? What is Christmas truly about? We certainly cannot look to the world for the answer to that question as the world is, and no pun intended, wrapped up in thoughts secular and distant from God. They'd rather talk about reindeer and snowflakes and, and hot chocolate and wassailing than the greatest gift ever given. So simply put, Christmas time is to be for us a time in which we remember and we celebrate God's gift to humanity. In the coming of Jesus Christ, God gave humanity a gift that can never be purchased online. You can't go and find it in some mall. Believers are to celebrate an event that caused the very host of heaven to be revealed in the night sky and, and speaking to some shepherds, declaring glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. God was pleased to reveal to Humanity, his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What we celebrate this very day reminds us that at precisely the right time and at the precisely perfect time, at the right place and the perfect place, the most perfect gift ever given, the gift of all gifts, was given for a very specific reason. That gift is our Lord Jesus Christ. What does this gift of Jesus really mean to us and for us? What does it mean that God has sent his only begotten son into the world? Our text this morning will be Galatians 4, verses 1 through 7. We'll read it in just a moment, but it will reveal several truths concerning God's gift, this great gift to us, his son Jesus Christ. If we were to put it into a sentence, it would be this, and this would serve as our big idea. With the first advent of the Son of God, the, our Lord Jesus Christ, believers have received the glorious gift of adoption, whereby we have been turned from being slaves to sin into sons of God. I cannot think of a better thing to tell you on this day that because Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law, born in the fullness of time, at the perfect time, that you and I can be transferred from a domain of darkness and sin and despair and death and be transferred to the kingdom of God's Son where there is hope and life eternal. We've been transferred from being slaves to sin into sons of God. As we gather this Christmas morning as the people of God, let me encourage your hearts with a message that I suspect you do not hear that much or that often this time of year, and that is the message about the doctrine of adoption, the doctrine of adoption. To put it with the title of our message, what did you get for Christmas? What did you get for Christmas? Now, I talked to some of you, and you haven't opened your presents yet. But if you are here this morning, and you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you have an answer to that question without ever unwrapping anything earthly. That you should be able to answer this question 
most definitively. I pray that you are able to say that with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and the work that he performed on the cross by which he suffered and bled and died for your sins, you have been given the gift of gifts. You have been made a child of God. You've been adopted into his family. It is good for us to address this great doctrine of adoption as part of the celebration of Christmas because ultimately I submit to you that with the coming of Christ and the life that he lived, what it is ultimately all about is God adopting you into his family, making you fit to dwell forever with him, to not just be some outcast that deserves sin and damnation, not to make you neutral, but to make you part of his family. And so this is what we celebrate. But what is adoption? Beloved, adoption is the act where a person takes a child, not theirs by natural birth, and makes him legally his own, giving him the the rights and the privileges that belong to any naturally born child. As a natural child is born is nothing short of a miracle of God. I submit to you that being adopted, to be an adopted child, is nothing short of an expression of the grace of God. When the scriptures speak to us of how God spiritually adopts us into his family, it is even more miraculous and more gracious than any natural birth that you could consider. Spiritual adoption occurs when the holy, sinless God takes one who is a sinner, who has been hostile, alienated uh, from God, and graciously makes him a full member of his family, giving him all the rights and all the privileges that come from being a child of God. You are fully accepted. You are fully favored. You fully possess freedom. You fully possess access to the Father. And you have the inheritance that he has promised to his own son, Jesus Christ, as your inheritance as well. When I ask you, what did you get for Christmas? I hope that you would be reminded in your own mind and be able to say to others, the best Christmas gift that I have ever received is when God the Father turned me from being a sinner into a son of God, adopting me into his family through the person and work of his son, Jesus Christ. I submit to you that in Galatians 4, we find a reference to this gift of adoption. And you will notice that the context of of being made sons of God, as we'll read it in a moment, that Paul links this wondrous event of being adopted into the family of God with the incarnation. We're going to read that in just a moment. When the Son of God became a son of man, he did so that the sons of men may become what? Sons of God. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. Again, I submit to you that ultimately the story of Christmas is really about how God gifts his people with adoption as his children through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. But before we dig into our text, let me provide you with some important background in this letter to the churches in the region of Galatia, which is in the upper northeastern region of modern-day Turkey. The Apostle Paul had been speaking to those in that area of the matter of Old Testament law. That there were those who thought that if I could just keep the law, if I could make myself right with God. Let me just remind you that we are all little lawmakers. Uh, You see it with children. Don't they like to make up rules? All of a sudden, you'll see children do this. We are all little lawmakers, and we want everybody to abide by our rules and our standards. And there are churches, and there are uh, political movements, and there are children's games, and there's all sorts of things in which we make up the rules and say, only if you abide by these rules will you be accepted in this club, you will be accepted in this church, you'll be accepted in this political arena. Well, that's what was happening, only these were... uh, These were people who were Jewish, and they were looking to the law and thought, well, the law was given to us so that we might live according to the law and that we could live according to the law and please God. But the law was never given to show people that they could do it. It was to show them that they couldn't and that they needed a Savior. 
And so Paul had been explaining to those in the church that the law that was given by Moses was not given. Listen, it was not given in order to make people holy. In fact, it was given rather to demonstrate that you are not holy and that you cannot live up to God's standards. It was to reveal our need of a Savior since the, only, the law only would reveal how sinful we are. We read of this, if you'll look up in Galatians 3. I know we have not gotten to our text yet. and want to set the context. Galatians 3, verses 22 through 24, we read this. Paul says, but the scripture, and there he's referencing the Old Testament, specifically the Old Testament law, but the scripture has shut up how many people? Everyone under sin. The purpose of the law was to shut up everyone under sin. There's no one righteous, not even one. You cannot live up to the standard. The scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe this contrast. Don't depend on what you think you can do. You need to, by faith, look at what Christ has done. Verse 23. But before faith came, we were kept in custody. We were in bondage under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become, notice what it says, our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. What's the purpose of the law? To keep you locked up in this circumstance until you come to realize I need a savior to educate you in the fact that you are a sinful soul that needs saving. I would have you consider that word tutor with me. It speaks of a person hired to instruct a child. In the days of Paul, a wealthy uh, family would place the child under the training and supervision of a household tutor, a schoolmaster who would teach, who would guide, who would protect, and even provide limits and issue discipline as needed. Truly some sort of, if I were to put it in today's vernacular, this was a super nanny, right? Uh, this was a super nanny that homeschools. How many of you might want one of those? Yes, some hands are going up. The child would be under the care under the custody, bonded and bound to this tutor until he came of age, until that time when the child, now an adult, would assume all the rights and the responsibilities of the ro- and roles in that family. And this is what Paul speaks of, saying that the law was a tutor for the people. All the rules and regulations, all the ceremonial rituals, all the commanded ordinances, All that it commanded confined the people who were under them now. They were showing them that they were were sinners. In other words, the people of God were under bondage to all those ordinances, all the detailed instructions regarding sacrifices and offerings, the observance of holy days and feasts, the keeping of strict dietary laws and commandments that dealt with most every single aspect of life and not one person could live up to them. Some thought they could, by keeping these things, make themselves righteous. That is, I'm right with God because I've kept everything that God has told me to do. There are two problems with this. First, no one could ever keep all the laws and the ordinances. And second, the purpose of the law was never intended, as I said just a moment ago, to make any person righteous. The purpose of the law, this tutor, according to Paul, was to confine them until God accomplished something for them. And it began when God sent forth his own son, Jesus Christ, to be their redeemer, to be their savior, to make it possible for God to then adopt them into his family. And all of this unfolds with the birth of Christ. With all of that, let's now read our text, and I would invite you now that you're nice and settled in to stand with me as I read our text from Galatians chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Again, this will serve as our text this morning. We find the Apostle Paul writing to the churches of Galatia saying, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he's the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. 
But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. May God bless us as we study his word together. You may be seated. I submit to you (laughs) that the best Christmas gift ever is in these verses. Did you see it? The one who believes on the Lord Jesus Christ is taken from being a slave to sin and being made a son of God. Our text tells us the reason Jesus was born into this world, did you catch that? So that he might redeem. And what is the result of being redeemed? We always talk about our redemption. We talk about being saved. God saved me. Jesus saved me from a sin. I I am bought by the blood of Christ. I've been born again. I've been redeemed. We we sing the songs of all of that. But did you catch there in verse 5, he did all of this. He came so that he might redeem those who were under the law. But it goes on to say something more, something even more spectacular. There's a result that comes from being the redeemed. And what is it? We are no longer in the power or penalty of sin. All the law did was inform us that we are sinners in need of a savior. But now, in the fullness of time, as we'll explain in a moment, the Son and Savior has has have arrived, and he completed his work on the cross, and he redeemed us so that it could lead to something else. No longer slaves, but now adopted as sons of God. Look at your gift carefully here, as this is all made plain again in verse 5. What is the purpose? That we might receive... Not that we might gain, not that we might obtain, that that we might work for or merit, but we might receive, passive, the adoption as sons. Now, I ask you to join with me as we consider this wondrous gift of God. I will say it again. What Christmas is about is how God the Father adopts his fam- into his family sinners whom he makes sons and saints through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. I would say to you that there's a real sense that until you understand this doctrine of adoption, of being made sons of God, we are not understanding the true meaning of Christmas at all. When we speak of God's adopting us as his children, we are in fact speaking of our salvation. To be saved is to be adopted, and to be adopted is to be saved. You cannot separate the two. They are uh, equal sides of this equation. And yet I fear that we rarely consider this wonder of adoption. Truly, adoption was a doctrine keen on the mind of the Apostle Paul. So many of his letters address this very topic. For example, we read in Romans 8, verses 15 through 17. And notice the similar language of that as we read in Galatians. And and just so if you're trying to keep track, Galatians was written before, about six years before the book of Romans. So Paul's consistent in his theology. And he writes, For you have not received a spirit of what? Of slavery to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Did you catch this, this gift, that if you are a child of God, that you are an heir of God himself, and you are a fellow heir with who? With Jesus Christ, your Savior. Notice that for Paul, the opposite of being adopted, the opposite of being a child of God is being a slave to sin, the spirit of slavery. Once adopted, we become full members of God's family, being as much, are you ready for this? We are as much a son of God 
as our Lord Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, we're not God. We're not, that's a different nature there, but we're talking about our status is the same. And being made in the likeness of Christ, the Father also makes us then joint heirs of the rich inheritance that belongs to our Lord Jesus Christ. Consider Ephesians chapter 1, verses 2 through 6 with me, where Paul again unfolds this truth. We read beginning in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Christmas, just think about Christmas. What a blessed gift this is. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to what? To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved. You talk about a gift of gifts. You talk about joyously opening a package and saying, this Jesus is mine. I belong to him and he belongs to me. I am now the possession of Christ, but I also possess Christ. He is mine forever. And no one can take that away. How many Christmas gifts have you kept for years and years and years? How many have you forgotten? How many have been just uh, been thrown away? Not so with this gift. This gift is, is an eternal gift. It comes to us by faith. Do you see how the doctrine of divine adoption by God the Father through Jesus Christ, God's Son, is the most glorious thing you could consider? The most glorious gift that you have received? Beloved, our gracious Heavenly Father did not send Jesus, His Son, into the world merely, you ready for this? Merely to take away our sins. We speak of that so often. What a glorious truth. But he did not send him merely to take away our sins, as wondrous as that is. He did not simply wash us clean by the blood of his son, Jesus, that, and say, that's enough. We read of Jesus Christ that when he came, he reveals to us grace upon grace upon grace. The reason God sent forth his son was indeed in order to redeem us, indeed to cleanse us from our sin, but all for the purpose that he might do one more thing, one more glorious thing, and that is to bring you as a son, a child of God into his family, to adopt you, to fully make you his own, that you might enter now into the most intimate and delightful of re uh, relationships. Paul uses that word that we can cry out with the in. Uh, by the Spirit, what? Abba, Father, Daddy. Some, some people don't want to use that term, Daddy, because it seems like we're bringing God down. It indicates that we have access to God. We are that intimate with God, and we didn't do it. There's not one of us in here, and not even collectively could we try to put all of the good merits that we might have and bestow it upon one person. We'll say, we're going to take Brett, and we're going to give all Brett every good thing that we've done, and that will not get him anywhere near what's necessary to be adopted into God's family because it comes only through the merit of one, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. When we hear the phrase, Jesus is the reason for the season, we ought to remember and then rehearse before others that the ultimate reason Jesus was born was in order to redeem us so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Isn't that what our text says? Don't stop short. It's like opening, do we see this with the little children. They'll open a gift, and there may be two parts of the gift, and they open the gift, and they're more interested in the paper, and there's so much more going on over here. Don't be simply interested in the fact, as wondrous as it is, that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all sin. Go one step further. You have access to God. God is your Father. God so loved you that he wants that relationship with you that goes beyond just saying, oh, I've got some uh, awesome God out there somewhere. I can intimately interact with him in prayer. One day I will see him face to face with my Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born in order to 
redeem us so that we might receive the adoption of sons. And so as we stated earlier, with the first advent of the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, believers have received the glorious gift of adoption, whereby they have been turned from being slaves to sin into sons of God. Well, with all of that background and in our time remaining, let us consider uh, four aspects of what this means. Let us go back to the words of the Apostle Paul here in Galatians 4 and considers how he shows us uh, by means of these four points this truth. And the first one is to note our situation. Let's notice our situation. Again, verses 1 through 3. Paul said, Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? The way that he's treated in, the, in a first century Roman culture, home, the way that he's treated, he's not treated any differently than a slave. Now, we sometimes have this connotation of slavery that people are being beaten, and there, may, there was that going on too. But these would be household slaves that would have been treated pretty well, and they would eat pretty well. He's no different, though, than a slave. He's bound by that, even though it says he's the owner of everything. He's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So also, in this comparison, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. So Paul begins reminding believers of his day that even though the child is an heir, even though he is the owner of all things, until certain requirements are met, that child was under the guardianship, under the management of that tutor we spoke of earlier. While the child is truly a son, during his upbringing, it is, he is only little better than a slave. And so we read in verse 3, so also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Paul says something interesting here. Notice Paul says we, we. This is uh, not a reference to every single person in the world, but those who are the redeemed children of God. There are children of God uh, who have not come to that place of recognition yet where God has to open their eyes so that they would receive Jesus Christ. But he, he makes us, while the scriptures speak of all people truly being their chil uh, God's children in, in one sense, of being created by him, the scriptures speak equally that not all people are in the position of being his favored children. Even a quick review of some familiar passages reveal this truth, some being children of God by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so we read in 1 John 3, 1, these very familiar words, Behold, see what great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, we who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we should be called what? Children of God. If you know the verse, behold what manner of love, see what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called children of God and such we are. When we contrast that with Ephesians 2, 3, which says that all people, every single one, until an expression of faith in Jesus Christ are by nature children of wrath, children of God's anger against their sin. You and I are born as children of wrath. We must be made children of God. That's the process of adoption. Ultimately, I submit to you there are only two kinds of people in this world. Yes, we believe in a binary kind of uh, format here because God sets it up as binary. Two kinds of people. You ready? Or you can say saved and unsaved, right? But what, what is... What, what am I, where am I going here? Jesus, uh, there are the children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And then there are those who Jesus describes in John 8, 44 this way. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. You are either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. You are either a follower of Christ or you're not. Those are the only options. We must remember this scriptural distinction. Scripture does not promote what is so popular among many, this idea that, um, uh, that all people are God's special children. In Galatians 4, Paul speaks only of those who are children of God by virtue of the fact that they have confessed with their mouth Jesus is Lord. They believed in their heart that God raised him from the dead. They know themselves to be a sinner. They know that Jesus is Lord and Savior, and they bowed the knee to him, thus receiving what? Adoption as sons. 
These are those who are transformed by him. These are those who have their behavior and thinking changed by Jesus. True children of God are a called out people. They are called out of the world, believing in the work that Jesus accomplished for us on his cross as revealed to us in the gospel message. Salvation is always by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We, we make mention that in the Old Testament, believers were true children of God by faith in the promised coming of Messiah or the Christ as preached by the prophets and reflected to them in the commandments and ordinances of the law. In Galatians 1 through 3, Paul points his readers back to the Old Testament and is re, he's reminding his Jewish readers that they would have been just like that child under the guardianship of a tutor. Old Testament believers were under bondage, under, it says, the elemental things of the world. Whoever places themselves under anything other than faith are following something that cannot save. It doesn't matter whether it's Old Testament law. It doesn't matter whether it's a Jehovah's Witness doctrine. It doesn't matter if it's an atheistic manifesto. It doesn't matter if it's just some secular humanism. Whatever it is, you are being kept under bondage by ele the elemental things of the world. Well, what does that mean, the elemental things? The word that Paul uses there is interesting. The word elemental literally speaks of things being in an orderly arrangement. We might uh, say that that's setting things in a row, one after the other. Uh, we can use this. It would be used to speak of an alphabet. An alphabet is one thing after another, right? Your, we could say your ABCs. That's an elemental thing. That's the basic building block of vocabulary and, and language. What Paul appears to have in mind then is that there are basic rules and regulations that are true for every human religion you can dream up. Paul uses the same word in verse 9 to speak of the weak and worthless rituals of any work-based human achievement type of religion. These elemental things then are any type and every type of human religion, whether it be Jewish or Gentile, which promotes the idea that somehow if you do these things, you can obtain divine acceptance by your efforts. I want to remind you that there's nothing that you've done that would deserve the gift of heaven. There's nothing that you can do to merit it. There's nothing you can do to maintain it. It is all of God. And yet, the elemental aspect of our nature says, I, I've got to be able to do things. I've got to be able to put things in some kind of order. The word elemental speaks of those things that are merely human and therefore unable to raise us up beyond the mediocre of this world, beyond the mundane to the divine. What Paul is communicating is that for those who wish to live by any kind of law, by some system by which your good deeds are weighed on a scale by which you might hope that in the end you've done enough to please God, well, they will have you lacking. They will bring you up short. And those who do that are like people, uh, are like those such people are like children in bondage to an orderly arrangement. It all sounds good. It has a form of godliness, but it's not what God has prescribed. He has not called people to believe that they are doing anything. He's called people to believe on and believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Such people live under confining principles that will never bring life but only death. We see this idea fleshed out by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians 2.8, believers are exhorted, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men. Notice the word here, according to the what? The elementary principles, the elementary things of the world rather than according to Christ. Anything that you try to set up as some, here's my system by which I make myself right with God, that will lead you to hell. There is to be a contrast between those who live according to Christ as compared to those who are confined people by their various rules and regulations by which they say they might make themselves right with God. And so we read a little later in Colossians 2, notice in verses 20 through 23, he says, if you have died with Christ to what? To the elementary principles of the world. There it is again. 
why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So what's going on here? Don't trust what you can do. Look only by faith to what Christ has done. This is the one whom God has sent. But our situation is that we tend to want to look at what we can do. We even get wrapped up in the church with that. I, you know, I believed and I've had faith and I did that. No. As, as an old hymn once says, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. It was him seeking me. We recognize that we will always come up short. In other words, stop putting your hope of being right with God in the keeping of your rules. Well, I go to the right church. I go to a Doctrines of Grace church. I go to a, a, a little community church that is not wrapped up with all the big lights and shows. That's not going to save you. Uh, we have a great uh, uh, a doctrinal statement for our church. That doesn't save you. Christ alone. Don't look to the, the rules and the regulations and the rituals. Look to Christ alone as we read in the next verses in Colossians 3, verses 1 through 3, that say this. Therefore, if you've died with the Christ to the elementary principles of the world, that sense that I'm going to do something. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above not what you can do, but what Christ has done, seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is what? It is hidden with Christ in God. Because Christ has come, there is no need for anyone to be in bondage to the rules and the regulations and the thoughts and the philosophies and the worldly wisdom that cannot save. Christ alone is to be your righteousness. Christ alone is your savior. Christ alone is the one who will deliver you out of this circumstance, this situation. To live apart from Christ is to be bound to live under some law regardless of whether your achievement-based religion is Jewish, whether it's denominational, whether it's self-made, it cannot save you. And that's what brings us then to our next consideration in verse 4. Our situation is that we were bound, but now we look to our sovereign God. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. I like the word oozes. I don't know what connotation it has for you, but this verse oozes with the sovereignty of God. It's all about God. Notice this is all about what God has done for us. It doesn't mention anything that we've done at all. It's what God has done. And what has God done? God sent forth his son. We're going to start with that. It was not man's doing. This was not under man's control, but God, just as he had promised, sent forth his son. Here, beloved, is the promised seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. Here, beloved, is the promised seed of David from 2 Samuel 7.12. Here is the promised child who would be called Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah 7.14. Here is the child born to us, the son given to us, Isaiah 9, 6. As Isaiah 9, 7 ends, I think about the seed of the woman, the seed of David, the son, and the child given to us, born to us. And Isaiah 9, 7 ends with these words. Listen, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. You won't do it. You can't, you have no hope of seeing this come about. It is God doing, it's God's doing. And God displays his sovereign control over all prophecy, over all history. In this one moment that we celebrate when God sent forth his son. The fulfillment of prophecy, as we noted from last week's sermon, just comes uh, blowing our minds as, as 
so many prophecies come to, to pass. But this sovereignty, this control is so precise. Notice what it says. God sent forth his son, but when did he do it? When the fullness of time came. We might say at precisely the right moment. No, at precisely the right second. God sent forth his son. God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ at the right time of history, a time when the conditions of the world were perfect to accomplish redemption, but also to promote the spread of the gospel, the message of what God had done for humanity in Jesus. It was at the time of Christ's birth that the world had been brought under uh, the relative peace of the Roman Empire. There was something called the Pax Romana, Roman peace. And that peace uh, brought so many blessings to the world at the time. Under Roman, uh, under the, the power of Rome, a highway system was in place that allowed for generally safe travel all throughout the Roman Empire. Also at the time, the majority of people under Roman rule all used a common language known as Koine Greek, literally common Greek. This meant that once Christ accomplished his mission, the message of Christ, uh, of what he had done, what we call the gospel, could easily be, del be delivered throughout the entirety of the, of the known world, throughout the Roman Empire. And they could understand it, and many would be converted to Christ. It's exactly what we see. It was in the fullness of time that, by God's providence, the provision of God would come to do the miraculous. But in addition to this phrase, the fullness of time, it speaks of the timing of God's redemptive plan for humanity. Now is the time for salvation to be revealed. This is the context of Paul's words. In Galatians, uh, this would be in most keeping with what Paul had already said in this letter. Back in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul wrote about the promises of God having been made to Abraham in his coming seed, if you looked at that. And one born of his body who would be the one in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Paul reminds his readers of this promise that being blessed by the seed of Abraham came before the law of Moses. Why would you keep the law of Moses? There was a promise given. God promised that there would be a blessing that would not come from the keeping of rituals. It would come by having faith like Abraham. Abraham believed and it was credited to him. As righteousness. Paul reminds his readers that this promise was before the law. It was not the law then that secured salvation. Rather, the law was given so that you might know you need salvation. But the law did not annul the promise of God when it came concerning the seed of Abraham. In Galatians 9.13, if you just look up there, hopefully your Bible's still open, Paul asked the question, why the law then? Why did God give this law? It was added, he says, because of transgressions until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. The point is that the law was given to bring people under confinement because of sin. God gave his good law, and yet his people could not keep it. It revealed them to be sinners and needing that Savior then in the fullness of time. When the law had fully served its purpose in the redemptive plan of God, when people could clearly see from the law that they could not make themselves righteousness, this is when God said, now I send forth my son. That's what we celebrate. Hang on. Let's go back to the idea of this uh, being sent forth. For God to have sent forth his son also tells us something about the son. If God sent forth his son, it means the son existed before he was sent. He had to already be in order to be sent. Here we are reminded that at just the right time, God, the son of God, left the glories of heaven and came into the world. And let us note how he came into the world. How should God come into the world? The Shekinah glory. The, the sky should be rolled back like a scroll and the whole world behold Jesus. How did he come? Paul says, born, born, you've been around a birth, is that a glorious thing? Born of a woman? More literally, it's simply born of woman. 
not the uh, born of a woman, just born of woman. The idea here is to convey that he is truly human. He was born of woman. This one who was sent from God, who had to be God because he was with God, is now born of a woman. Think of the glorious God being born in, in the, all the, the, the blood and the guts and the nastiness that seems to come with being born of a woman. I know some of you are thinking, it's beautiful, whatever. story I could tell. I was there. You have to ask me later. The one who existed as God, a very God, who had never experienced a body of flesh and bone, became flesh and He left heaven's glory in that state of being face-to-face with God through eternity, of being in delightful fellowship and never experiencing anything hostile, anything violent. And by the way, being birthed is a violent act. He left the glories of heaven to become human. That's the Christmas story. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We are also told that not only was he born of woman, but he was born under the law, or again, more simply put, the literal Greek would be born under law, meaning that he came into the world as a Jew under the same constraints of the law, which had kept his people, how? Under bondage. But now... In the fullness of time, at just the right moment, according to the plan of God, according to the time of God, the promised seed of deliverance from sin, the answer to our need of deliverance from our sin and our inability to do anything about our sin, now the time had come for the person of Jesus Christ to arrive. This is the Christmas story, the birth that we celebrate. But as we know, the birth of Christ is not the whole of the story. It's only half the story. For the reason he was born is astounding. He was born to obtain full and eternal salvation for those who would believe on him. He was born to be, our third point, our Savior. Our Savior. We read in the beginning of verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law. In verse 5, God sent forth the Son to redeem those who were under the law. The word redeem means, as many of you know, to buy back. And it was used to describe the price that was paid to free another from, the, from bondage or from slavery. They were on the slave market, and they were bought off of that slave market. Beloved, this is precisely what God accomplished for us by sending us his Son. Jesus came into this world fully human, but like each of us, just like each of us, He was born under law, which means being fully God, though he was able to keep all the law. He was able to do what we could not do. No fallen human can keep the law, but Jesus, we're told, kept it how? Perfectly, in perfect righteousness. He did everything right as God had commanded. But God, in making Jesus the head, the representative of all who believe in him, then receive the blessing of his righteousness. It's credited to us. You don't have to worry about it. Am I good enough for God? I get that. I don't know if I can come to God. I don't know if I'm good enough. And the answer is you're not. And quit thinking you need to be. Because you'll never be good enough for God. Not one person is good enough for God save one, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has said, if you believe me, my righteousness can be yours, will be yours. It will be given to your account, charged to your account. Additionally, because he's fully human, because he was born under the law, he's now able to pay the penalty of our sins, which is what? Death. You and I deserve to die. A human must die. But because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he can give his life as a ransom, the scripture says, for many. How many? 
all who will believe. Our text indicated that Jesus is fully human, uh, and so he's fully and able to finally redeem us, having bought us out of this bondage and having established a new covenant for us so that all of the benefits of his sacrifice and all of the benefits of his righteousness have become ours, ours if we believe in him and walk by faith under the direction of his Holy Spirit. Paul explained it this way in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. Merry Christmas. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You could not do it. You were never intended to do it. You were intended to look to Christ by faith. And when that took place, there's now no condemnation if you are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did How did he do it, folks? Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the the flesh but according to the spirit. What does that mean? I'm not looking to what I can do. I'm looking to what Christ has done and his spirit leads me in all of that. And I ask you then, have you received this Christmas gift? Some of you may say, yes, I did it many years ago. We'll rehearse it and delight in it again. Get it out and polish it off and put it on display at Christmas time. Some of you may need to open this gift for the first time. Believe that Jesus came to accomplish this on your behalf, to redeem you from a sinful life and enabling you to follow him as a son of God. But it brings us to our last point, our status. Notice what it says at the end of verse 5. I love this. This is this double, uh, uh, this double statement. i got to come back to this in verse 5. So then, um, uh, get to the right chapter here. So that he might redeem us. So he was born under the law for the purpose that he might redeem those who were under the law. But then there's a purpose to the purpose, right? That's what we're talking about here, that we might receive the adoption as sons. We're not going to get to explain verses 6 and 7 in depth, but he kind of extrapolates here for us. What does that look like? You get to call the father Abba. You get to have this intimate relationship with him. But we began this message with being reminded from Galatians 3.22 that all people are shut up under sin, for this purpose, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. We start as sinners. We've been shown to be in bondage to sin. We have been revealed to be slaves to sin. But how does the story end? If you believe in who Jesus is, if you believe that he has come and what he has done on your behalf, what is the result? Your status is changed. It's opening up the present and saying, here it is, my certificate of adoption that you are a child of God. That's the end of verse 5. It answers the question, why did God send forth his son in the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem us from the penalty of sin so that, what, here's something fantastic, the best gift ever that we might receive. The adoption as sons. There's a Christmas story. Christ was sent from the Father to bring about salvation in the fullest sense possible. Not simply to free us from the guilt and penalty of our sin, and not simply so that we might be made clean before God, but also to be wondrously brought into this glorious new uh, status of possessing the full rights and the full privileges and the full inheritance as sons of God. This means that we are fully accepted by him, fully pleasing to him, fully in the deepest sense possible in a relationship with him, fully receiving the full inheritance that his beloved son, Jesus Christ, is to receive, to to dwell in the glories of heaven forever and ever. Beloved, this is why our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was born into this world. He's born of a woman as one who was sent forth to fully accomplish for us all that he was sent to do on the cross and after his resurrection it's interesting he said something to his disciples 
that is quite profound. And, and I, I always like to stop when I'm reading scripture and try to, try to read it with real fresh eyes. Listen to what Jesus said to his disciples after his resurrection and see if this is not a profound statement. Jesus said, I ascend to my father. You with me? Nobody has a problem with that. I ascend to my father and to your father. That was new. I ascend to my God and to your God. You see, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ not only secured our pardon from sin if we believe, but it placed upon us, it placed us squarely in the family of God. This is the meaning of Christmas, and this is the best Christmas gift ever. And I ask you, have you received it? As we close, let me remind you that if you are not considering our, your adoption as a son of God, because of the coming of Christ, you're not really understanding the whole Christmas story. Beloved, let us make sure that we've received this gift of gifts. Now, how do we do that? You place your faith in what Jesus did by his coming. We must receive him. We receive his person. We receive that he's truly God and truly man. We must receive the work that he did when he came to give his life as a ransom, and he did that on the cross. And having done that, he has enabled God the Father to adopt us, to give us a spirit, his spirit, by which we cry out, Abba, Father, enabling us now to no longer be slaves to sin, but sons of God. And I ask you, have you received that gift? And if you have, have you treasured that gift? And if you have, do you proclaim that gift? Because you recognize that this gift is for anyone who believes. We read in, in John 1, verses 12 through 13, very familiar words. But as many as received him, that is Jesus, not merited him, not earned him, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? Children of God, even to those who believe in his name. You must believe. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but they're born of I pray that on this Christmas day that you have received the best possible gift, that you have intentionally placed your faith, your hope, your trust in Jesus, and you can say with me today, yes, I have received that gift. For those who have received this, these go on to fully embrace the privileges of their adoption as children, seeing it worked out in their daily lives. Well, what might that look like? We don't have a lot of time for application. But might you consider your sonship in the way that you pray? Do you reflect your sonship in the way that you pray? When you pray, you might reflect how it is and why it is that you can actually pray. Perhaps your prayer might include something like this, and I just put some words here. So, Gracious Father, and I gladly call you Father today, I bring my praise, my petitions, and my concerns to you. Not, to, not just to anyone, but to you alone. Realizing that you have made me a full son of yours. You've washed me clean by the spilt blood of your son, Jesus Christ, and therefore I realize that I am fully accepted in your sight. Made a delight to your heart. Loved by you even as you have loved your only begotten son, Jesus Christ. I offer my prayers as one who is destined to live with you eternally, made to share in the inheritance of your son, Jesus Christ, in glory. I offer my prayer as one, uh, uh, as one you delight to hear and to meet in your good providence. I pray even as your son, Jesus Christ, has taught me to pray, saying, not my will, but your will be done, that I would pray accordingly. I know I can pray in this manner because you have so loved me and your beloved, and I know you will answer doing what is good and right according to your good plan and purpose. Father God, thank you for receiving my request, even as a loving father hears and desires for his children. As your child, I trust you to do as you see fit, praying these things in the name of Jesus, my Lord and Savior, the one who alone has made it possible for me to come to you in all the fullness of grace.
Beloved, this is what it means to be a child of God. And if you have received Jesus by faith, then you are a child of God. Jesus came to make those who believe adopted sons. This is the Christmas story. This is the best Christmas gift you can ever receive. So when I am asked what I got for Christmas, while I may share some delightful yet temporary things, may I never forget and may you never forget to say that the gift of all gifts that I've ever received, the best one was this. I received the Lord Jesus as my Savior. Truly the coming of Jesus into the world to be our Savior is the gift of gifts. And so I say to you, O come, let us adore him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was sent forth at the fullness of time, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem us from our sin, redeem us from slavery to sin, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Father God, may we glory in that. May we ponder that. May we delight in that we are in the family of God, not because of what we have done, but because of your son, Jesus Christ. We desire now to give him all the praise and all the glory for doing such a wondrous thing. May he truly have first place in our hearts this day. We ask and pray in Jesus' name.